0: Well, let us turn now our attention to the Word of God. Uh, We'll have three more sermons from this wonderful, wonderful letter that God gave us as a gift through the Apostle John. These are the Lord's words, beginning in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him Casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Let's read that again. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. enlighten our eyes that we may see him in the message of this text. Amen. It was a beautiful, sunny, late Saturday morning on our vacation, which found Nancy and me sitting at a table outside a coffee shop in Williamsburg, Virginia. Down the street, we could hear a lot of voices At first it sounded like a crowd yelling, but it was really more like chanting. I looked at Nancy and said, I'll bet that's a Black Lives Matter protest. Let's go check it out. Uh, Nancy was not enthusiastic about this idea, fearing that her husband might be walking her into a riot. It was anything but the protesters lined the intersection of a street that is an entrance to the College of William and Mary and the town's historic, uh, historic town's market square. Each protester held a placard with a variety of messages handwritten on them. They were led in chanting by a young black woman shouting through a bullhorn. There were two things that struck me about the gathering. First, it reminded me of the liturgy of the church where I grew up. (laughs) You wouldn't expect this, but that was my first thought. This is like church. In the church I grew up, the pastor would read a text and we would either repeat what he had read in unison or respond together with a responsive uh, set of words. Like the protesters, we did not chant with any enthusiasm. We were just confessing what we believed. The leader's chants at the protest were quite simple. Black lives matter. Silence is violence. And other statements that were simple and easy to repeat together as a group. After a few minutes of chanting, the leader would pause for a time and the group would fall silent. I was so struck by the similarities to a church service that during one of the extended pauses, I intoned with my most clerical voice, let us pray. (laughs) And I didn't plan that. I just did it. The people in front of us, these four women who were in front of us, turned around startled. I suspect my humor seemed sacrilegious to them. The other thing that got my attention was the composition of the crowd. They were, as expected, young. This is a college town. But they were also overwhelmingly young, white women. Most of them clad in the latest athleisure wear with seemingly none of them having a bad hair day. I assumed that these are the children of wealthy and successful parents who have pushed their children to strive to make the grade so they could attend this competitive college. And I began to look at them and wonder what compelled these young, successful students to give their time and voice to a protest on a beautiful Saturday morning. Was it because they had witnessed injustice toward blacks in their upbringing? I I could be wrong, but I kind of doubt it. Or were they looking for something deeper? Something for themselves? A sense of assurance that they were good people. They were among the righteous. And that despite their white wealth and privilege, they really weren't racist sinners, but supporters of the oppressed. Those were my musings on that sunny Saturday morning. We live in an age of uncertainty. Without a God to lead us into righteousness, we need a sense that we're living well. I've noticed this anxiety about, am I living well? I've noticed this uncertainty and anxiety among Younger people I know, especially younger women. Am I living a good life? Is it okay for me to acquire wealth? Am I in the right career? Does my job have any good social purpose? Do I do enough for people in need? And I've especially noticed this in younger Christians. Do I do enough for the poor? Does my church... Am I in the right church? Is my church doing enough? Am I living a good life? Does Jesus approve of how I live? We live in an uncertain age. In an age where the individual has been placed on the throne where Jesus belongs. And that produces a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety about whether the way we live Is good or not? Our text today ties these questions together, ties together much of the teaching of the letter the Apostle John wrote to this struggling church. Our assurance of whether we are right or wrong is grounded not in ourselves, nor is it found in what other people think or say about us. And both of those were issues in that church in that day. Our assurance comes in being joined to Jesus Christ in a living union with Him. The source of our life and righteousness comes to us because we, to use John's word, abide in God. And God abides in us. And we can be assured that he abides in us because we think and speak and act in certain ways that give evidence of us being united to him. I know I'm repeating what you've heard many times through this book, but in the Apostles' day, there was a group that had left the church he was writing to. But in leaving, they continued to criticize Those they left behind in the church. You don't understand Christ. You're concerned about sinning, which is not an issue if you know Christ like we do. These people must have rattled the assurance of the church members John wrote to. It's also likely that these secessionists had very harsh words and feelings about the leaders in the church, especially the Apostle John. Their hatred may have been deeply felt by everyone in the church. John has already addressed each of the issues we find in our text today in the previous chapters of his letter, but here he ties them all together. And listen, I I want you all to know this. This This is what he's getting at. You can be assured that you are living a good life because you're joined to Jesus Christ. And your motives and actions aim in the direction that comes from abiding in Him. Abiding in God allows you to live out of divine love. So let's let's look at the text now in some detail. Number one, verses 13 to 16, we see the source of divine love. Verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Now, before we can get into the text, we've got to know what John means by this word, abiding. It's a very simple, common Greek word that gets a variety of English translations. It can be, in in our text, it's translated abide. It can also be translated remain or stay or continue or even live. It speaks of a connection, and in the case of our text, a personal connection. And it's not a passive connection. So if we use the word remained instead of abide, we could say they remained married for 43 years. And that can be true in a legal sense, but meaningless in a personal sense, They remained married, but they lived in different cities. Or, they, with joy, participated in all the duties and benefits of a marital union for 43 years. In our text today, this is what abiding gets at. It's a living, active relationship. We know that John wants us to see the personal and interactive idea behind abiding because he points out that we already know that we have this abiding relationship because He has given us His Spirit. goes beyond needing a certificate from somebody else to tell you that you know in your spirit that He has given us His Spirit. As Paul notes in Romans 8:16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there's this personal communication and interaction with God himself by his spirit. And directly related to the spirit's work, and it's it's unfortunate that verse 13 ends with a period because it doesn't in the original The next section is also directly connected to knowing that we abide in Him. Verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. So, abiding in Him and His abiding in us results in a spiritual awareness that God sent Jesus to save people who are characterized by the word world. In other words, people without hope, people apart from God's grace. We who were at one time adrift in an ocean of sin and confusion have been saved by Jesus Christ to a living relationship by His Spirit. The secessionists deny that Jesus is the Son of God. They could not imagine that a human being could be the Son of God. They worshiped Christ who they claimed was never a man and they denied sin in their lives so why should they need god to send his son to save them That's what they were up against So you can know that you abide in god and he in you because you have seen and testify and confess that Jesus is the son of god sent to be the savior of the world. So verse 16 is key. It's a key. Look at, look at verse 16. It begins with another small word that connects verse 16 to what precedes. So we have come to know the same no we saw in the beginning of verse 16, 13. I'm sorry. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Us, The relationship of abiding produces in us a correct confession and testimony about Jesus inspired in us by the Holy Spirit. And in this experience, we know and believe a love that comes from God. Then John repeats a stunning statement he first made in verse 8. God is love. God does not simply perform acts that are, by definition, love. God is not simply someone who performs love. God is, in his very nature, love. You cannot reduce this love, as many do with the Greek word agape, saying that this is simply a love that is self-sacrificing. Oh yes, it is self-sacrificing, but it is much more than that. Any human being can, apart from God, sacrifice himself or herself for someone else. Parents do this for their children. Soldiers do this for their comrades. This love goes beyond that. This love is divine. It doesn't just act divine. When God abides in you, you love with His very love in you and moving through you to others. So the second half of verse 16, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Do you see this? When you're joined to Jesus Christ and you love another person. It is the very love of God that abides in you that is loving that other person. You're participating in a sphere of love that is the very nature and character of God Himself. God is dwelling in you and loving others through you. What is key here is for you to see that if you abide in God, the source of your love for Him and for others is Him. Him. This is not a product He puts into you. When you love, the very nature of God is functioning in you. Abiding in God is personally living in divine love. The Spirit gives us this knowledge of the love of God as revealed in the work of Jesus who came to save us. And we live in Him. We remain in Him. Oh, we can resist Him. We can neglect Him. But once He abides in you, He's there to stay. He continues in you. Your knowledge, your confession, your love, none of it begins with you or comes from you. He is the source of your life and your love. You can't come to God and say, Hey, I, I, I loved somebody you is that is that good enough love no, you come and say ah oh, I, I noticed you, you loved somebody through me It's a key distinction he's the source we don't have to generate this we just cooperate with it number two in our text today is love in completion look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. By this is love perfected with us. In the modern age, we get all mathematical about this word perfected. The gymnastics routine was flawless, so the judges scored it with a perfect 10. The word more precisely, and what John is getting at, is the idea of completion. It means that something's completed. It's done. It's fulfilled. Something has completely hit the goal. It's filled up. It's a full tank of gas. It's a new house that's fully constructed and ready for move-in. doesn't mean that every wall is perfectly plumb and every corner perfectly square. It means that it's fulfilling its purpose that it was intended for. So verse 17 tells us that love is perfected or completed in us by this. By this is love perfected in us. By what? By God abiding in us. God makes His love really, truly function in us by abiding in us. The emphasis here is on His love toward us. John Calvin writes that this confidence on the day of judgment does not arise from our evaluation of ourselves and our performance, but our confidence originates as, to quote Calvin, the fruit of divine love toward us. The last part of verse 17 tells us that just as Jesus was in the world, loving the world, so He continues to love the world as we are in the world. Because He abides in us, He is still in the world. So we don't have to fear how God will evaluate us on the day of His judgment. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect or completed love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If you know the perfect, completed love of God for you in Christ, if you know that He's filled up His love and you have more than enough, You will complete that love, you will perfect that love by loving others in the world. And if you know his love, you will not be fearful about being punished. If his love is completed in you, you will not fear his punishment. His completed love in you removes all fear of being punished. So the antidote to your fear of condemnation or judgment is not to try harder to be better, but to see him in his complete love for you and then move toward him in seeking to be like him. It's a world of difference. Think of a boy who has a father who loves him. His father is devoted to him. He provides for him and trains him. He constantly reminds him of his affection for him and disciplines him when he does wrong, but always with a heart of love and affection. Let's say this boy gets involved with some other boys and they are caught shoplifting. The boy immediately knows his father will be displeased. He knows his dad will correct him and likely brings some consequences for his actions to teach him. But he has no fear of a violent beating. He has no fear that his father will kick him out of the house or disown him. His father loves him with a completed love. Verse 19 shows us that we love out of the completed love of God because he's the source of the love we show. We love because he first loved us. We don't love because we fear punishment. We love because we're objects of His love and because we abide in that love just as He abides in us. So it's a completed love that we've received and it's a completed love that we give because we're abiding in Him. And so that love that comes through us is actually His divine love personally coming into the world. Number three, we see love in Action. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. While divine love is evidence of God abiding in a person, hatred reveals an absence of God's presence. Hatred is a settled, ongoing hostility toward another human being or group of human beings. It wants that person to experience pain, ultimately the pain of death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. If God abides in you, you will not hate another person. You might be offended, you might be bitter about the harm he's caused you but you do not want his harm love john reminds us in verse 21 is a commandment of jesus and this is this commandment we have from him whoever loves god must also love his brother four times four times In the final evening that Jesus spent with his disciples before his betrayal and death, he commanded them to love one another. Chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Chapter 15 This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then chapter 15 again. These things I command you, that you love one another. The man who wrote this letter sat in a room and heard Jesus say those words. So while love has a divine source and gives us the ability to love as Jesus loved in the world, we are responsible to act. We must participate in the divine love by loving others, especially our siblings, other children of God. These acts of love are, again, the fruit of faith. They are responses to God, to who He is, to what He has done. This faith assures us that we are born of God, that we're His children. And as His children who have received His love, so like Him, we also love. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Everyone who believes, there's faith, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. Of him. By loving the Father, we love his children, which the Father and his Son command. But, John says in verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. John says, we must not be overwhelmed at these. Commandments. There is a tendency to be overwhelmed. There's that going back to that self-sufficient insecurity, lack of assurance. Am I loving enough? And so he says in verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. The source of your obedience is in loving others, is God's divine love. Your ability is empowered by the Spirit of God. So you can do this. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is not a cruel task Master, trying to squeeze every ounce of obedience out of you until you drop in exhaustion. He's not asking you to bench press 400 pounds. John Calvin again wisely notes in reference to this verse that the problem in our obedience is not in God's commands, but in our weak human flesh. And so, our last point, in the last verse of this text, number four, love inspires faith that overcomes the world. For everyone who has been born of God, verse four, chapter five, verse four, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So John concludes this section of his letter by again addressing that the source of our love and our obedience does not start with us. We overcome sin and fear and weakness by trusting in the one who saved us. As Paul puts it in his letter to Titus, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, So our obedience doesn't originate with us. It originates with the very person of God who is love, who moves in us and through us to love others and thereby we keep His commandments. God is love. God abides in us. Therefore, love abides in us. Divine love which allows us to love as Jesus loved when He was in the world. Our assurance of His love and His salvation is not found in what we've done for God or for what He has done, but for what He has done for us. And the evidence of what He has done is shown in our confession and obedience and love for other people. We know because the Spirit has shown us, but we also know Because we do love other people. Oh, it is imperfect love in the sense of it's not flawless, but it is complete. It's real love. Because you abide in God, you can live out a divine love. Listen, I don't know what motivated the young protesters I saw a few weeks ago. I didn't interview any of them. But you know what I do know? I know my own heart. I know how much I want assurance from other people. I want assurance from my own acts that my own conscience will approve me independent of God. I know that. I also know many others who have confided their fears to me. We are unsure about ourselves because we believe that we are the source of our own righteousness. This passage, this precious passage today takes our assurance outside of ourselves and roots it in the love of God who abides in us and loves through us. It begins and it ends with Him. Even our love and obedience are His working in us. Because we abide in God. And He abides in us. This is our assurance for today. And this will be our assurance on that great judgment day. Please pray with me. Father, we live in a world that since Adam and Eve first sought to live independently of you has always looked for approval always looked for assurance from some kind of law that we've kept or some group that can approve of us as being acceptable and we see that that is not the love of God And so we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, make us aware of this divine love that has come down from heaven to us in the person of Jesus, has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit of God, and now lives in us and works in us because we abide in you, and you abide in us. Let this knowledge liberate us to love. Let this knowledge liberate us to obey. Let let it liberate us to testify about the Jesus who is the source of all our assurance and comfort and peace. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.